Paul asks this question in Galatians Galatians chapter 9, what purpose then does the law serve? And it's a natural question. It's a question that you would expect to be asked after what we looked at last week in Galatians chapter 3. Because we saw last week in Galatians chapter 3 that the law brings a curse. As he says in verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law, literally those people that are relying on observing the works of the law, those people are under a curse. Anyone trying to relate to God by the works of the law puts themselves under the curse of the law. And we saw last week as well that the only way we receive the blessings of God, the blessing of Abraham specifically, which is a a right relationship with God by faith alone, is, is to put our faith in Christ alone. And so it's based on the promise. God says that, that the, the gospel is based on the promise or is the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham some 430 years before the law was ever given. And so the question comes up, well then what do we need the law for? What's the purpose of the law? And this is probably a question that Paul's raising assuming that it's a question that the Judaizers would ask. Okay, Paul, You think you're so smart? It's all about God's promise and Abraham. What's the law for then? And so Paul in this next section is going to talk about the value of the law. And there definitely is a value to the law of God. Now, just to make sure that you guys understand what I mean by the law, in one sense we are talking about all the Old Testament, all that God has said uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, Maybe we we talk about the, the moral law, the ceremonial law, those kinds of things. But specifically, we could sum up the law in the Ten Commandments. That's the moral law of God. That's the law that God gave to Moses. That's the law that that Paul is really kind of focusing on here in these verses. Those Ten Commandments that God gave. And and, and Paul's asking this question, sort of assuming the Judaizers would say, okay, what about those? What about those Ten Commandments? Why did God give us those if we don't need them? If If our salvation's got nothing to do with the law, why did God give it to us in the first place? And that's the question he's going to answer. And so he answered the question first and foremost by saying, it was added because of transgressions. Now, we're going to see in this first section that Paul's going to make the point that the law communicates to us what God's standard is. It tells us this is God's standard. This is what God says is right. This is what God says is wrong. It communicates God's standard. When he says it was added because of transgression, he uses this word transgression on purpose. It's, transgression is, in one sense, another, another word for sin. That's true. But it's a specific word. Whereas sin is just sort of a general word that means that you've missed the mark of God's glory, transgression talks about this reality that there's been a line that's been drawn and you've crossed that line. You, there's, been, there's been a line that says, don't go past this point, and you've gone past this point. You've transgressed past that point. And so when he talks about that the law <clears throat> was at a before transgression, he's talking about the law was brought to draw those lines to show when we have crossed, when we have gone beyond where we're supposed to go, where we have done which we shouldn't have done or not done what we should have done. And so that's what he means by transgressions. And notice that he says, listen, he says, it was added because of transgressions until a certain time, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Now, who do we see the seed was last week? Jesus. Jesus is the seed, isn't he? And so there's a, there's a reality that the law, though it's God's standard, it's, it's God communicating what his standard is, it's a temporary standard. 
It was never meant to be a standard that would last forever. It was a temporary standard. Now, this is something that's important for us to recognize, and it's something that, that we need to understand in what sense it is a temporary standard. Because one of the things that I think we can make a mistake of in, as, as modern Christians or as Christians in the West is to maybe think, okay, the law of God's a temporary standard. Once Jesus came, we're not under any laws anymore, so we can pretty much do what we want. <laughs> there, there's no standard. God's, in Christ, God sort of lowered the standard. He's kind of made it easier for us. But it's important to recognize that when Paul says that the, the, the standard of the law was only there until the seed would come, there isn't a reality, this, this fact that Jesus actually raised the standard. I want you to keep your thumb in uh, Galatians. That's why God gave you thumbs, so you can keep your place. Keep your thumb in Galatians and turn to Matthew chapter 5. And look, let's look and see how Jesus raised the standard. He communicated even a higher standard than the law was than the law communicated. Matthew chapter 5. These are all the words of Jesus that I'm going to read to you. Follow along with me. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Sorry, starting in verse 19. Jesus says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, listen, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now what was the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? If you remember, the scribes and Pharisees, these were religious leaders in Jesus' day, and the righteousness that they held to, the standard they held to was, we're going to do what the law says. They were going to keep to the letter of the law. And so they would actually add a whole bunch of new laws to make sure they could keep to the letter of the law. Okay, the law says I need to honor my mother and father. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to uh, treat them well and I'm going to make sure that they're taking care of their old age. But then they would come up with this conflict because they would say, yeah, but the law also says that I need to you know, love God before I love anything else. And that's kind of hard because, you know, God blesses us with riches and I really like all the money that I have and, and I, I sort of want to keep that some for myself, but I can't, I can't you know, uh, worship money and worship God, so okay. And I could give it to my parents, but then I still wouldn't have it, so, oh, I know, I'll make a new law, which will help me keep the letter of those two laws. Here's the new law I'll make. The new law is, I'll say all the money I have is given to God. It all belongs to God. I set it over, I budget it in one big category, all for Jesus. It's all for God. That's my category. And so I set it all for God. And then when mom and dad come and say, son, we're broke, we have nothing, can you please help us? We say, I would like to help mom and dad. I really want to honor you, but what I have is given over to God. Sorry, got to keep the law. Got to have no God, other thing before me. And they would actually create these new laws that would, would say, okay, listen, we're keeping the letter of the law. And Jesus is saying, listen, your righteousness, if you want to be part of the kingdom of heaven, if you want to follow me, your righteousness needs to be way beyond that. It needs to be bigger than just figuring out, okay, how can I keep to the letter? How can I make sure that I feel, fulfill as much as this is possible? It's got to be way bigger than that. They were so consumed with the letter of the law that they would do things like, okay, it's the Sabbath day. God says, keep the Sabbath holy. You should do no work on the Sabbath. That's the seventh day for, it would be, you know, according to Scripture, it would be from Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown. And so we've got to keep the Sabbath. So no work should be done during that time. And so what they would do is they would be so strict that they would have these rules. Okay, you can't cook on the Sabbath. 
You can't walk farther than a certain amount of steps on the Sabbath. You know, you, 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 can't, you can't prepare food. You can't do all these different things. And they would keep all these rules to think, okay, we've got to keep the rules. We've got to keep the Sabbath. But then if they were, you know, walking their few steps on the Sabbath and someone was drowning in the river, they'd go, oh, they're drowning. But okay, I can only do 20 steps and that's one, two, that's 25. Sorry, dude. Hopefully you're still alive tomorrow. So they would keep the letter of law. They would keep the Sabbath. They wouldn't work, but they would totally ignore the spirit of the law. And so all that we have here in Matthew chapter 5, actually 5, 6, and 7, which is called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is basically saying, listen, I'm raising the bar. I'm raising the standard. I'm not going to say it's just the, the letter of the law. It's well beyond the letter of the law. And so if you drop down to, uh, to verse 27, look what he says, a couple examples. He says, you have heard it all that it was said. You shall not commit adultery. That's in the law. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her in his heart has already committed adultery with her. And so Jesus says, yeah, okay, great. So you, you haven't had sex outside of marriage. Good for you, but you're always checking out your neighbor's wife and fantasizing about her in your head. So you kept the letter of the law, but you're guilty of the spirit of the law. Another example that Jesus gives, drop down to verse 43. He says, you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your enemy. Again, that was a, a way that, that, that the, uh, the rabbis would sort of say, okay, how can we stick to the letter of the law? We see God says that we should love our neighbor, we should even love the strangers among us, but yet the strangers were supposed to conquer. So, okay, how about we say, what we need to do is really love our neighbor, those who want to be next to us, but you know, if they're not really our neighbor, I'll tell you what we'll do. How about we just hate, we'll just call them an enemy, then we can kill them and it's justifiable. That still keeps the letter of the law. So that's what they would say. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But God, Jesus says this. He says, I, I raise it higher. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Do you notice he says it's not just about don't revenge, avenge yourself. He's saying, listen, I want you to pursue the good of those people who hate your guts who would rather see you dead. Rather than saying, well, they're my enemies, I'm right. I have a right to hate them. No, I want you to pursue their good. Jesus raised the bar. Now, it's important to understand this because we need to understand that what, what he means by the law, what he means by God's standards, what's good about God's standards. One more verse in Matthew 5, then we'll go back to Galatians. Matthew 5, 48, what does he say? Therefore, Jesus says, you shall be what? Perfect. No, verse 48 of chapter 5 says perfect. You shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. See, what religious people wanted to do was take the standard of God's law and think, okay, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. Okay, well, let me, let me get this down. Let me memorize it. Let me understand it. Let me just do this. I can do this. And Jesus is saying, you don't get it. You don't get it. That is God's standard. But let me show you, there's a, there's a spirit of that standard. There's a, there's a standard even higher than what was communicated in the law. It's a standard of perfection. It's a standard that reflects the very heart of God. And Jesus is saying, that's the standard that I hold you to. Now going back to Galatians. When Paul says, what's the purpose of the law? Added to transgressions, communicating God's standard of right and wrong. 
And he says, but that's only until the seed comes. It is in part this reality that God has set a standard. God has communicated a standard of right and wrong. It's a non-negotiable standard, which is why he says what he says next in verse 19. He says, and it is appointed, or I'm sorry, and it was appointed through angels by the, med- by the hand of a mediator. Now then he says this in verse 20, which is a little bit hard to understand. He says, now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Why does he say that right there? Well, understand what a mediator is. A mediator is a person who, who, who basically mediates. He goes between two parties and expresses the will of one party to the will of the, uh, of the other. And then he does it both ways. He's sort of a neutral party in, the, in between, and he says, okay, this party says, here's what I want to negotiate. I want this based on this. Now, what do you say? Well, okay, that party. And then he goes, okay, now that party said they want to negotiate based on this. And so what you have is, God says when the law was given, when the standard was given, it was given through a mediator because there were two parties involved. There were two parties involved. You had Israel, God was making a contract or a covenant with Israel, and he had, of course, God himself. And so God sent it through a mediator. Angels brought it down to Moses. Moses communicated it to God's people. But he also makes this comment about, but God is one because he's making it clear that, listen, God was not negotiating a contract with them. God wasn't saying, okay, all right, here's what I'd like to have. You, you, now you counteroffer. God starts with, okay, I got 10 commandments. The, 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 the people come back, you know, I think eight would be more fair. God says, no, 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 nine. All right, okay, we settle nine, nine commandments. It wasn't a negotiation. God wasn't negotiating with, with his people. God wasn't saying to Israel, okay, I'll tell you what, let's, let's figure out a standard. What's, a good, what's some good rules to live by? Let's kind of put those down and see. Hammurabi had some good stuff. Let's steal from him and put that down. Let's do that. No, that's not what he's doing. God's saying, listen, I'm sending this through a mediator, but this is not about mediation. This is not about a contract. This is a non-negotiable standard. God is saying, this is my standard for you, and it ain't negotiable. Now, again, Jesus, when he came, he took that standard and he made it even greater. He, he, he raised the bar even higher. See, yes, it's important for us to understand in answering the question, what's the purpose that the law has? Its first purpose is it communicates the standard of God, but here's the trick, it can't fulfill it. Look what it says in verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. In other words, Paul says, the deal is this. Hey, the law communicates the standard of God. It communicates this is what the standard is, but it doesn't communicate here's how you can fulfill it. It doesn't give you the uh, enabling to fulfill it. It exposes what the standard is, but it doesn't enable us to fulfill that standard. Now, this doesn't mean the law is bad. Because as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, he says, but the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Guys, it's good for us to know what God's standards are. You ever been in a situation with someone who's in authority over you, whether it's a parent or a boss or a teacher, who they're always changing the bar? You ever been in that situation? You know, They, they, they seem to communicate, this is what we want for you, or this is what we want from you. So you think, oh, okay, I'll do that. And then you're like, no, no, you're doing that wrong. We want this from you. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll do that. No, no, you do it wrong. We want this from you. They keep changing the bar. You know what I'm talking about? They keep changing the standard. There's nothing more frustrating. You just want to wring their neck. Like, come on, just tell me what you want for crying out loud. Just make it clear. So it's a good thing that God says, I want to make it clear to you. I want to make it clear 
what my standard of holiness is, what my standard of goodness is. Now, there's something about the Ten Commandments that ring true to us, especially those that involve a relationship with other people. We, we, I, think we, we, I think we sense the certainty or the truthfulness of what God has commanded when someone breaks a commandment against us. You know, like when, 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 if we've been in a committed relationship with somebody and that person becomes unfaithful to us, the pain of that makes us realize it's a good law, thou shalt not commit adultery. We, we feel the pain of that, we realize that. When we've been lied to, someone's told us something that was a lie, they deceived us, and we feel the pain of that, we, we, we agree with God, it's a good law, thou shalt not bear false witness. When somebody's broken into your house, I don't know if anybody here's had anything stolen from you of any kind of value, whether it was material value or intrinsic value, but if it's stolen from you, you feel so violated and you can agree with God, yeah, your law is good, thou shalt not steal. And so there's, there's, there's parts of the law that we can still say, yeah, when that happens to me, you know, I, I hate it. I think even things like covetousness. I don't know if you've ever had something and you knew that somebody was really jealous of what you had. You know, they were coveting what you had. They really wanted it. And so they were always kind of maybe grumpy around you when you used that thing or were involved in that thing. And, and you could tell that they were covetous. I'll tell you what, it just it takes all the pleasure of that thing completely. It's miserable, you know, it's horrible. It's so hard when you're like, hey, look at it. My mom got me this for Christmas. Oh, yeah, your mom, she must be rich. You said it for Christmas. I didn't get that for Christmas. And you're like, you can't enjoy it. And you can agree with God, man, it's so stupid. It's so hurtful to covet, you see. And so we can, we can agree with God that the law is good and God has set a standard and he says, listen, I'm not changing that standard and this is what the law does. It communicates the standard but we have to understand it can't enable us to fulfill that standard. Now in talking about this, it's important for us as we go through these verses to recognize the difference between law and legalism. The law is good. Legalism is bad. Here's what legalism says. Legalism says, here's God's standard. Now do it. Duh! I can't ever lie. I can't ever cheat. I can't ever steal. Now, if any of you ever tried that, you know you can't keep that standard. I don't know if you guys have noticed on our book table, we have these little pressed pennies, and there's also these bigger sort of fake coins, and they have the Ten Commandments on there. You might have wondered why we have those. In fact, you might have thought, oh, yeah, that's kind of nice. I, I, yeah, Ten Commandments, good laws. We should try to do that. We don't have those things so you can go, ooh, memorize the Ten Commandments. Do the Ten Commandments. We have those things because they're a great witnessing tool. Because you can give that to somebody who doesn't know the Lord and say, you know what those are? Those are the Ten Commandments. Are you familiar with any of those? If you read those things, you'll know none of us ever do those. <laughs> we are constantly breaking those Ten Commandments. You go, oh, wait, wait a second. Hey, maybe some of the people in your church, John, have done that, but I don't break the Ten Commandments. You might be thinking to yourself, oh, really? Have you ever lied? Not to be a big lie. It's a lie's a lie. If you've ever lied, even a small thing, what does that make you? A liar. Ever stolen something? Oh, never. I'd never steal. Not a candy bar. Not a pen from the office. Not a paper clip. Oh, come on, that's petty. It might be petty, but it's still not yours. It's still stealing. You ever steal time from your employer by checking your personal emails or your Facebook when you should be working? Ooh, gotcha. All these faces go down. <laughs> now the truth is, guys, we all are thieves and liars and adulterers in heart. That's the reality. 
And God says, listen, you need to recognize the law. Legalism is, here's, the, here's God's standard, do it. No, the law is, here's God's standard, no one can do it. No one will ever be able to fulfill this perfectly. So there's legalism, here's God's standard, you gotta do it. There's law, here's God's standard, you can't do it. And here's the gospel, Jesus did it. Here's the gospel, Jesus did it. Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law. Now, the next thing he brings up, he brings up this issue in verse 22. He says, but the scripture, he says, has confined all under sin. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, so we see the law communicates God's standard, but it can't fulfill it. But also what we're going to see here in these next few verses, next couple of verses, is that the law of God, it restrains our sinfulness. It doesn't just communicate a standard, it restrains our sinfulness. It keeps us back. Now, one of the things that it does is when it says the law has confined all under sin is the law, when we look at the law, when we see it as God's standard, the law of God keeps us, delivers us from what I'll call the cult of superiority. Do you know what the cult of superiority is? It's that attitude that we have of, you know, I'm bad, but I ain't as bad as that guy. That's the cult of superiority. We do this a lot, don't we? Religious people are the worst about this. People that have been in church for a long time, we can be the worst about this. We can, we can uh, look at people and we can judge them. It's amazing how many people I've known over the years, Christian people, who will wink at the sexual sin of their teenage boys and be repulsed by homosexual sin of someone else they know. Now the issue is not that we shouldn't be repulsed by homosexual sin, but we should be equally repulsed by heterosexual sin, you see. It's when we have this mindset that says, oh, you know, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as them. That we actually are exalting ourselves and not seeing the law for what it is. No, it confines all under sin. Now, the Bible says this in Romans chapter 3. Paul says, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, and this is the reason why it says it, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, that every mouth would be stopped. What, what is it he wants to stop? What, is, what, what, is, what are we mouthing that God wants us to stop? God wants us to stop justifying ourselves. All right, God, okay, fine. I, I, I'm not perfect. I, I blow it. But, you know, I'm trying really hard. You know, okay, I, I have fallen. I, I have stolen. I've, you know, I've stolen a candy bar when I was a kid, but I haven't done it in years, God. Come on. I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Okay, God, you know, I, I, you know I've, I've lied, but I try not to lie. I try to be honest. I'm doing really well. My intentions are good, God. You guys know the phrase, the road to hell is paved with good intentions? We can do this, guys. We can justify ourselves. And God, in His grace, has given us the law to shut us up, to get us to stop trying to justify ourselves, to get us to come to a place and say, I'm a wretch. I admit it. I'm a wretch, Lord. 
I'll tell you what, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I walk with God, the more I allow the Holy Spirit to change me into the image of Christ, the longer I'm with Him, the worse it feels like I'm getting. (laughs) It feels like I'm getting worse. But you know what, really, I'm not getting worse. I'm not getting worse. God's changing me. But you know what it is? I'm beginning to see more and more day by day by day just how wretched I actually am. Just how selfish I am. Just how wrong my motives are. Just how little I love people and care about people. Just how much I want my glory and not God's. More and more and more, I see that. You know what? That's the good thing that the law does. It shows us, guys, that our mouth should be stopped. It confines us all under sin. We're trapped there. In fact, it's interesting. This word confined in verse 22. The same word, the same Greek word is used again and it's translated in verse 23, under guard. And then again in verse 23, the second time the word kept is used, it's the same Greek word. And all three times where it says confined, under guard, kept, all three times the word means this. It means protected by military guard. And it's this idea, it's this, this picture that Paul's painting. that The law restrains our sinfulness. It sort of keeps us in jail. Isn't that one of the reasons why that we in, a, in an ordered society have jails? You know, whether they're, they're good or not, this might be debatable, but one of the purposes of jail is to, to keep criminals from doing more crime, isn't it? A guy's a rapist, what do you do? Stop that now. Now go on your business. No, you chuck that dude in jail so he doesn't rape anybody else. That's what you do. A guy's a thief, what do you do? Hey, stop that. No, you chuck him in jail so he doesn't steal from anybody else. This is what you do. This is part of what it does. It's for the protection of others. And this is kind of what he's saying. We're all confined under sin. We're all imprisoned by our sin. And the law says, listen, this has to stop. But also it shows us this. It shows us, when it says in verse 23 that that we were kept under guard, it says this idea that what it's doing is it's reminding us of the dangers of a practicing sin. When we read God's law and we say, God says, if you do this, you will die. And we see that a lot. It's one of the things that's hard for us to swallow about the law of God is that God said, you rape somebody, you die for it. It's a bit harsh, isn't it? And there's some other things that are even more controversial than that. We just see this law just seems to be so harsh and so heavy. We think, Lord, why did you say some of those things? Why did you have Moses write down some of those things? Why is that? And the reality is what he's doing is he's wanting to make it clear to us there's a consequence to your sin, a serious consequence to your sin. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, the consequence is only there if I get caught. If I don't get caught, there's not a consequence. I call innocent. You think those thoughts. Just like I do. Come on. It's only bad if I get caught. Well, listen to this. The author of of Hebrews tells us that we need to be exhorting each other in in walking with Jesus. and, And for this reason, it says, exhort one another daily, lest any of you, notice, be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. He says there's a, there's a chance that your heart can get hardened. And he says it's by this deceitfulness of sin. Not the sin of deceit. He's not talking about just the fact that you, as we deceive people, our heart gets hard. That is true. But he's talking about the deceitfulness of sin. And this is it. No matter what is the sin that we practice, no matter where we break, we transgress the law of God. Whenever we do that, you know what happens? Our heart gets a little bit harder we deceive ourselves in thinking, you know what, it's not that bad. Have you noticed that the more you sin in a particular area, the easier it is to sin in that particular area? Have you noticed that? That's exactly what happens. 
And so one of the purposes of the law of God is to restrain that, to say there's consequences, man. Don't be doing that now. There's consequences for that. It's to keep us from doing that. God doesn't want our hearts to get hard against him. Garrett and I were talking about this issue this morning in a general sense about how this works and just the reality of sometimes we, he was, we were talking about a friend of his back in the States that's really going through a hard time and praying for him and stuff and, and we were just saying, you know, we can sometimes look at people when they're in that situation and go, man, what's, what's wrong? How did it get that bad? How did their situation get that bad to where they would do that sort of thing? They would do that, such, that, such a, a brazen sin in such a public way. How would they do that? I'll tell you how they do that. One choice at a time. Each time they thought, I can do this, it's not a big deal, your heart gets a little bit harder. You see? And so the law has a, a restraining effect. It restrains our sinfulness because it shows us, listen, don't do this. If you do this, your heart's going to get hard. And for that reason, the law is good. It's very good. But notice also what he says in verse 23. We were kept. We were protected by this military guard in the last part of verse 23. Why? Kept for, notice, the faith which would afterward be revealed. When he talks about the faith, what's he talking about? He's talking about the gospel. As Jude talks about, it's the faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints. The faith that we should contend, contend for. The gospel. The only faith that saves us. It's not our act of faith, though God calls us to believe. God does call us to an act of faith. We have a responsibility to act in faith, to respond to what God says in faith. But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the faith, which is not our act of faith, our act of believing, but it's the faith, it's the object of our belief. It's what we believe. More more specifically, it's who we're, we're trusting in. And so when he says that you've been kept until the faith will come, he's saying, here's what the law of God does. The law of God makes you long for the freedom of the gospel. When you look at the law of God, when you see that God's standards are good, and yet we don't meet those standards, and we are confined by those standards, that we're all guilty of breaking those standards, what do we long for? God, change me, free me. I don't want to be imprisoned by this anymore. Sometimes, guys, that's why sometimes people have to get to a place where they have an experiential bondage before they're ready to repent. Why is it that drug addicts and and guys in jail and people at the end of the rope, why is it that they seem to be more prone to come to Jesus? Because they are finally experiencing and recognizing what's true of all of us. We're in bondage to sin. That's it. Now, a smart person, a clever person, recognizes that before you go to jail. (laughs) Before you you ruin your life, you say, oh man, I, I can see that I will ruin my life. I will be in bondage to sin. I am in bondage to sin apart from Christ. And, and when we feel that, when we sense that, when we recognize that, you know what happens? We say, oh man, do I need Jesus. We long to put our faith in him. We long to say, Lord, set me free. Oh, the, is there a promise that will set me free? God says, yeah, there's a promise that will set you free. Again, we need to clarify legalism, law, what does that mean? Take this out. Legalism, if the law is it, the law restrains our sinfulness, but it can't remove our sinfulness. We need to understand that. The law can, can restrain us. It can hold us back. We think, oh, God says don't do that. I better not do that. It's going to harden my heart. It's going to hurt other people. I better not do that. But it can't remove our sinfulness. Then we need to make sure we're clear about what's legalism, which is bad, and what's law, which is good. Legalism is this. Legalism says, and this is where it gets tricky. Listen, 
Legalism says you, you must restrain your sinfulness. That's legalism. You must restrain your sinfulness. Now listen to law. It's different, subtle but different. Law says your sinfulness must be restrained. You see the difference? Legalism says this is up to you. You have to restrain your sinfulness. But the law says your sinfulness must be restrained. See, what legalism does is it takes the law of God and it tries to twist it into something that we, if we try hard enough, can can fulfill. But what the law's purpose is to say, listen, this is God's standard. It's an unchangeable standard. It's a standard that he has communicated through his law, but it's also a a standard that is meant to restrain our sin. But at the end, end of the day, it can't remove our sinfulness. It can't give us a new nature. It can't do it. The law can't do that. So legalism... You must restrain your your sinfulness. Law, your sinfulness must be restrained. What's the gospel? Listen, Jesus overcame your sinfulness. That's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus overcame your sinfulness. Because this is important. Some of you guys are struggling to quit smoking. Some of you guys haven't got to that place. You think smoking is no big deal. Others are at the place you go, you know, this is bad. It's an addiction. It's a nicotine addiction. I'm not supposed to be addicted to anything biblically. It's a standard, New Testament standard. I'm not supposed to be addicted to anything. And so you're struggling. I should give this up. But one of the reasons you're struggling is you think, oh, I've got to give this up. I must restrain my sinfulness. This addiction, I must restrain it. You know what that is? It's legalism. And legalism will never set you free. This is why I don't tell people who smoke in our church, you must restrain your, sin- your sinfulness. Restrain that legalism. Stop smoking. Because I know that's not going to do any good. They're going to just go, oh man, oh man, I'm so guilty. There'll maybe tons of breathments to hide it and hand lotion and shh, you know, so much perfume that we're about to choke to death because they're trying to cover up the smoke. John's going to bug me. No, the reality is what the gospel is, Jesus has overcome your sinfulness. So whether it's smoking or drunkenness or pornography addiction or theft or lovelessness, The good news is Jesus can overcome that. He has overcome that. You no longer have to be a slave to sin. The law can't do it. All the law can do is show you, hey, there is sin that needs to be restrained. But only Jesus can set you free from that. Now, the last bit that we're going to look at in verses 24 and 25. We've seen so far, the law can communicate God's standard, but it can't fulfill it. The law can restrain our sinfulness, but it can't remove it. Those are good things, but not enough. And the law, here's the last thing, the law can reveal our need, but it can't meet it. It can reveal our need, but it can't meet it. Check this out, verse 24. It says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now, I want you to notice that Paul's making it clear the purpose of the law is that we might one day be justified by faith. Remember what justification is? Just as if you never sinned. Justification, another word for righteousness, a right relationship with God. Remember that? Remember how we talked about a couple of weeks ago in the beginning part of, of Galatians 3 how the gospel is, the, is, is God's free gift of righteousness? God says, listen, I'm gonna, I want you to have a right relationship with me and so I'm going to give you 
my very righteousness through faith in Christ. I'm going to give you that gift so we can be in right relationship, so that we can have real, eternal intimacy. I'm going to give you that righteousness. It's a gift I'm going to give to you. Guys, listen, the law was given to bring us to that place. The law was given to bring us to a place that we actually are ready to receive justification by faith. Now, here's what he says. He says, the law is, was our tutor. And what, what does he mean, the tutor? Some of you guys, if you have the authorized version that says schoolmaster, that's a really a bad translation, to be honest. Because it's a word here, uh, and I, I can't pronounce it in the Greek, so I won't try, but it, basically it's a word that means, it's a specific word that, that is, it describes a, a specific kind of slave in the Greek culture. And what the slave would do was this, this male slave was the slave that was responsible for getting the male children to school. He was responsible for their education. Basically, the, the father would, would take this slave and would say, okay, here's your job. Your job is to make sure little Johnny gets to school. He does his lessons. He applies the character that we say is our important characteristics of our family. He does what our family wants. So that slave's job was to set the standard, was to communicate the standard and to discipline the child into that standard that was set by the father. So that was this tutor, this slave. I can't pronounce the word. I wish I could, but this is what this tutor did, this slave. And so what would happen is this slave would, would he, they were known for disciplinarians. In fact, if you, if you, uh, when you study archaeology, what you do is you find out that when they sew, sew pictures of these slaves, whatever the Greek word is for these slaves, they're always seen with a rod in their hand. <laughs> so they were basically, they were sort of paid to beat the kids. You know? It's kind of like, you're the slave, what's your, what's your job? Master, what would you have me do? I would have you beat my children until they'd get it right. So, you know, nobody liked that slave. The, the sons never liked that slave. He would be the one that would basically say, your father says you need to be at school at 9 o'clock. Oh, I'm tired. Whoosh, ah, 9 o'clock, I'm there, you know. <laughs> okay, pay attention to your math lesson. Now this is boring. Whoosh, ah, math, you know. It just, you towed the line. And that's what the slave did. That's what this tutor, quote unquote, did. It would basically discipline. It was a harsh disciplinarian to, to get them to the place where they thought, okay, what's it going to take for me to walk in the, in the Father's will. And there was a reason for that was because the Father wanted to make sure that when his son, the sons received the inheritance, they were prepared to use the inheritance the right way. And so they purposely would have these slaves that would try to train their children, would help train their children to make sure that when their children were of age, when their sons were of age and they received the inheritance of the Father, they would appreciate what that inheritance was and they would use that inheritance the right way. Paul says... The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. The law was there to beat us, to show us, to chasten us about what the standard would have to be if we're going to get the inheritance that God has for us. What was the standard? What did Jesus say was the standard? As my Father is perfect, so you also be perfect. The law was there to say, Here's the standard for inheritance. It's perfection. You go, well, forget that then. <laughs> I ain't ever going to get it. It's not going to be mine. Wait a second. The law doesn't make you perfect, does it? The law just exposes your imperfection. It shows you. It's like that, it's like that tutor. It's like that slave that gives you a little whack every time you blow it and just reminds you, 
I am never going to earn this inheritance. <laughs> never. So here's the deal. In Christ, we have an inheritance. And this is what's really important. It's really important because it says in verse 25, but after faith has come. In other words, you, you've come to that place, you realize, I'm never going to earn this inheritance. And so instead of believing that somehow you can if you work hard enough, you realize, man, I'll never earn this inheritance. You come to a place, you go, Lord, it's only going to be a free gift that I have in Christ. I only have an inheritance because of Jesus, because of his work, because of his ways, because of his person, who he is. It's only in him. I can only relate to you through him. I only can inherit what you have for me in heaven through him. It says, but after faith has come, what does it say? Notice, we are no longer under a tutor. You know what that means? That dude can't hit us with a stick anymore. <laughs> you see, here's what the Judaizers were doing. The Judaizers were going, yeah, the inheritance is yours in Christ. That's great. Whack! But you missed the law. Duh! Whoa, 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 I missed. Gotta be circumcised. Whack! Ten commandments. Whack! Ceremonial laws. Whack, whack, whack! And they're going, oh, this inheritance stuff ain't so grand. Yeah, you got to believe in Jesus. Whack! And the law. And Paul's saying, no. When faith has come, when you realize that your salvation, your relationship with God, your inheritance in heaven is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, when he brings that stick to go, you can stop and go, no, I'm not under that anymore. There was a time when the sons would get to, a, when they came of age, when they would take the, the rod from their tutor, snap it. I'm no longer under that. Now you work for me. Paul's saying this is the picture. Again, the law's good. We need to be brought to that place where we realize I'll never do this on my own. I'll never make this by keeping the law of God. We need to have that. We need to feel the whack to bring us to Christ. But once we're in Christ, we no longer need it. Once we're in Christ, there's a chasing that God might bring because he loves us, but it's not by keeping the law. Again, legalism law. Here's legalism. If the law... Uh, if the law reveals our need but can't meet it, then here's what we mean by legalism. Legalism says this, you need Jesus and the law. That's what legalism says. You need Jesus, but you also need to keep the law. That is legalism. You need Jesus and you better be on church on the Sabbath. You need Jesus and you better get baptized or it's not real. You need Jesus and you better speak in tongues. You need Jesus and you better tithe. You need Jesus and you better be at church every time the doors are open. Is that what the gospel is? Is that? No. In fact, the law says this. You need Jesus. You want the whack to stop? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Legalism. You need Jesus and the law. Law, you need Jesus. Here's the gospel. Jesus 
wants you. He wants you. He wants you. He's not trying to put a a, a trip on you of rules and regulations. He wants a real, tangible, eternal relationship with you. That's what he wants. He created the universe for the purpose of sharing himself with you forever. He became a man and died on the cross for the purpose of sharing himself with you forever. He rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, sent his very spirit to dwell in us that he might share himself with us forever. That's the good news. Jesus wants you. See, the law is good if, listen, we use it lawfully. If we use it to help ourselves and others see only through Jesus, only through Jesus, only because of Jesus, only for Jesus. The law is good if we use it lawfully. Jesus said this in John chapter six, and this is the will of him, the will of the Father who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up the last day. The gospel is Jesus wants you. And he's asking you, the Holy Spirit is asking you, do you see me? The Holy Spirit is saying, do you see Jesus? Do you see that what he did was enough? Do you understand? Has the law been your tutor to show you you'll never do enough? You'll never meet the standard of God by your own efforts. Has the law done that work? Have you been whacked enough time to get it yet? Do you understand that Jesus wants you? Because that's the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to get us to a place where you realize, oh God, you do love me. You want me. You want me to be in a relationship with you and I can't do that if I'm always trying to meet a standard that I was never intended to be able to meet. When we get to Galatians chapter 5, we'll talk about the reality of how God the Spirit changes us so that we begin to meet the standards of God. We actually begin to love our enemies. We actually begin to esteem others as greater than ourselves as we're commanded to. God actually changes us so that becomes a reality. It's a reality that, that testifies of the power of the gospel. So we'll talk about how that happens. But know this, it doesn't happen by law. As much as God's law is his standard of right and wrong, as much as God's law does help keep us from going down a road of, of, of you know, unhindered sinfulness that, that would you know, harden our hearts even more, as much as God law, God's law does, does expose our need, it cannot, it will never give us life. Only Jesus can do that. If you are trying to relate to God by law, repent. Turn from that. The author of Hebrews talks about how maturity, a mark of maturity is that we're no longer having to repent from dead works. (laughs) You know what dead works are? 
They're, they're us trying to fulfill the works of the law. That's dead works. I'll be right with God if I never taste alcohol. I'll be right with God. I'll be right with God if I always do the right thing. Don't you get it? You'll never do the right thing. <laughs> you can't keep the law. The law is good. The law is very good. It's holy and it's just. If we let it do what it's supposed to do in us, and that's lead us to Christ.